Well, I'm going to invite you to take your Bible with me. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 29 as we continue through uh, our study in Genesis. Genesis chapter 29, our text this morning is verse 31, 29, 31 through chapter 30, verse 24, crossing the, uh, the chapter line there. And you're going to find that page 24, I think, in the church Bible, church Bible, 24 is where you find that. I'll let you turn there, and then I'll read it. encourage you to follow along in your own Bible or your app or however you do that. All right, let's give our attention to God's Word being read. Uh, Genesis 29, beginning in verse 31. What precedes this is um, uh, Jacob had been given his wives. Uh, he had worked for... Seven years for Rachel, Laban did the switcheroo, gave him Leah. He worked another seven days past, he got Rachel. He worked for a total of seven years in all. And now we come to the, the matter of childbearing. So here's where we pick it up. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Now she, she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob anger, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant, Bilhah, go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come unto me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. 
Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help. Father in heaven, we, uh, we have your word open before us. It is truth. It is for us. And Father, we pray that you would make it so that we are conformed as a result of this word to the image of your Son. Your word tells us ultimately about Jesus and all of the stories in your scriptures point us there. And I pray that we will see Christ exalted among us this morning. So help us, give illumination by your Holy Spirit. Father, give me utterance as well by your Holy Spirit that what we hear is not the words of a mere man, but your word. So plant that on our heart, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, perhaps you, uh, you know or have heard that the founding fathers of this nation, they believed in, in God, uh, but historians are, are certainly not in agreement. But it has been stated that men like uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson did not believe in the God of the Bible per se. They rather believed in God as this impersonal being or force who, who does not take any particular interest in creation. Uh, that, that point of view or that perspective on God, that person is called a deist. Perhaps you've heard that, that expression, as opposed to someone who is a Theist, the deist, believes that God does not hear or answer prayer. The deist does not believe that God would judge and that there is no particular consequence for either belief or unbelief in him. And they might simply say that God created the universe and then went away and had a cup of tea. That's how they might view God. And there are a lot of people today, I think, hold that view of God, that he's somewhere out there, he's really uninvolved in what happens they don't think that God has any particular interest in what happens on planet Earth. They might even say, well, God's too busy to deal with me or, or get involved in you know, these affairs. But looking at our Bible text, we actually see the opposite. We see the way that God relates to his people is that he intervenes in their lives. He is not blind to their circumstances. And that's true of us today. He is not blind to our circumstances. He is not unmoved by our plight. And he is not deaf to our prayers. And we see this on display with Jacob's wives. Now, this section is, of course, included in, in the larger picture of God's promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham, you will become great and a mighty nation, and you will possess the land of Canaan, or at least your descendants will. So we've had Abraham, his life, Isaac, 
And now we're at Jacob and we see that, that he is just bearing sons, all of whom will ultimately become tribal heads of this nation. And so we're given their names here. And that's in, in part why we're, why we're told this, so that we can see who this nation is once we get to settling the land. But for now, there's things going on in this family. And we want to look at that. Now, here's something that I, I simply think we, we all agree that the infallible word that we have read together is perfectly descriptive. But not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. I, you get what I'm saying? What I mean is that, that just because we read about Jacob and Leah and what they did and Rachel, it's not an affirmation of their behavior. I hope you know that. We can state unequivocally that it is sinful for a man to have more than one wife. The rivalry that we see on display here between Leah and Rachel was sinful. Seeking offspring by concubines is sinful. And yet, God patiently worked in the lives of his own to accomplish his greater purposes. So how do we, how do we think about all that we just read together this morning? Here's where I want to go. Taking uh, these words right from the text, here's how we as God's people today can take comfort. We can take comfort in the fact that God sees, that God remembers, and that God listens. And when he sees, remembers, and listens, he also acts. He intervenes in the lives of his people. So, that's my outline for this morning. God sees, God remembers, and God listens right from the text. First, God sees. Now, I, uh, I play on a hockey team with both my sons. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we won our game last, last Wednesday night. But, but the officiating seemed a little unbalanced, okay? Now, that's not just me, un you know, biasedly complaining. Uh, we got all the penalties. You can ask my son Jacob. He got two of them. Uh, but... We would contend that many of those are very questionable calls, and even if they weren't, it, it seemed like the refs were blind to what the other team was doing. You with me, Tony? This happens, right? <laughs> Didn't you see that trip? Didn't see it. If the ref doesn't call it, it doesn't happen. It's any sport, right? And we, we complained, of course, in a joking way, because we have a good relationship with the refs. You know, we say, oh, what's that? Two minutes for playing hockey? Come on. If you don't get the game, you don't understand the joke. Whatever. <laughs> Two minutes because he can't skate or stop? Anyway. But here's the point. They can't, they don't have eyes in the back of their head. They can't see everything. And because they can't see everything, they can't act. They can't really fulfill their job perfectly. And that's just part of the sport. We put up with that. But alternatively, or by contrast, God sees everything, and he acts perfectly and righteously in response to the things he sees. And that is true whether we see and understand or not. And that's important. God sees and acts irrespective of how we see or think he might or should act, whether we can understand it or not. Now, in our story, I, I don't doubt that both Leah and Rachel were fully aware of God's promise to Abraham. 
I don't doubt that, that 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 promise was passed on to Isaac and now Jacob. Now, beyond the fact of uh, that a wife in those days, and in fact, for much of, of history, a wife found significant identity in her ability to have children. There was for Leah and Rachel the added incentive that doing so, having offspring, would mean that they had a significant role in seeing that blessing that the Lord had given to Jacob come to fruition. So what did God see? Well, first of all, we see that God saw Jacob's neglect of Leah. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now, this doesn't mean that she was loathed, that, that he found her repulsive. It's, it's not that extreme. It's simply by comparison. She was not the favored wife. She was given to him through deception. And it was like, well, guess she's my wife. And, and certainly she knew that. She knew that. But the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and what did the Lord do? He acted. He opened her womb. And then we see by comparison that Rachel was barren. And God acted in that too. Now we might ask the question, why? You know, we could look at this, God saw that Leah was hated and therefore rewarded her with a special blessing. That's what the text seems to imply. Because she was hated, God blessed her. God closed Rachel's womb. And that's all we can say. Why God did it in his big picture, we can't know for sure. But we see here in the text that God sees neglect, uh, Jacob's neglect of Leah and his favoritism of Rachel and simply acted on Leah's behalf. Verses 29 uh, chapter 20 and verses 31 through 35, we see four sons are born to Leah. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. And, and the very fact of how she names or how her sons are named is, is evidence of how she felt, right? For Reuben, because the Lord looked upon my affliction. For Simeon, because the Lord heard that I am hated. For Levi, now this time my husband will be attached to me. And the one positive one in, in this being Judah, this time I will praise the Lord. Almost as if the other times I couldn't. But that fact of praise, praise the Lord through, through the name of Judah, foreshadows something that's coming later. In that it will be through the line of Judah that King David will be revealed, the scepter will not pass from him. And out of the line of King David, from the line uh, and tribe of Judah, will be revealed ultimately the Messiah. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But God saw that, that injustice of Jacob's favoritism of Rachel over Leah, so he intervened. And he caused Leah to conceive, but also prevented Rachel from conceiving. Rachel was barren. We see that in the same section. And, and to, and of course, the Lord sees this. The Lord had ordained it to be. Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. And so what does she do to what she knows? What does she do? Of course, that was the Lord's doing. But she had become envious of her sister. And what did she do? She took matters into her own hands. And it seemed even like she blamed Jacob. Uh, look, look at the verse 
verse, uh, of chapter 30, verse 1. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Now, rightly, I think Jacob's anger was apparent here. It says Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. He said, am I in the place of God? He understands that the Lord has closed her womb. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? And I think the the reason she unleashes this anger at her husband, I, I think this is part of her scheming. So she is taking matters into her own hands. And I think it was really a way to take away the, the potential resistance on Jacob's part to her plan. And we discover that Jacob here is morally weak. He is no doubt anguished by, by Rachel's deep longing to bear him offspring. And in that moment, Rachel offers up her servant, Bilhah. Verse 3, here's my servant, go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her, that even I. Rachel's following in the footsteps, of course, of Sarah, Abraham's wife, who, when she did not bear the promised son, offered up to Abraham, take Hagar, my maidservant. And just because Sarah did it, didn't make it right, and it's not right here either. But we find out Bilhah conceives a son by Jacob. He's named Dan as a justification for this decision. She concludes, God has judged her favorably. Now this is Rachel's conclusion. This isn't God's um, logic here. Verse 7 of 30. Bilhah again conceives by Jacob, and this son is called Naphtali. And, and again, we see that this decision to give Bilhah to Jacob was out of rivalry. Now, did God approve of this? Because it was successful? Because Rachel was able to vicariously get children through Bilhah? No. Now, in verse uh, 9 through 11 of chapter 30, seeing that she had ceased bearing children, Leah does the same thing. She gives Zilpah to Jacob. So now the competition is in full, full, full scale here, right? But Rachel might catch up. She has ceased bearing children. Now, Jacob has already acquiesced to the idea with Bilhah, and Zilpah bears two sons, Gad meaning good fortune, and then Asher meaning happy. Did God approve of this? No. But yet these sons are all in God's grand plan. Now in a strange event here as we, we, we come to f- verse 14, we see Rachel is still desperate to conceive. And so she seizes on a different kind of strategy. And I would say this, now involving superstition. And here's what I mean. It tells of this r- strange transaction, 14 through 19, between uh, Rachel and Leah. Leah's oldest son, as we read in the text, Reuben, he discovers these mandrakes in the field during the wheat harvest, and he brings them to his mother. Rachel sees this. And he asks her for them. Give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, now Leah doesn't immediately want to give them up. You've taken my husband. You want these mandrakes too? But she comes up with an idea. Offers to Rachel. Okay, when Jacob comes in with the field, you can have him. Now, what's the significance of the mandrakes? And this is where I get to the superstition part. As far as I can tell, it's this uh, root plant but the root plant was believed to cure infertility. Now, the mandrake is only mentioned one other time in, in, in Scripture. It's in the Song of Solomon. If you want to look that up, 713. 
there, there the mandrake is referred to in the context of the bride giving herself to her husband. And the implication is that its fragrance somehow might be understood to have aphrodisiac properties. Well, whether it was taken as a cure for infertility or as some enhancement to vitality, either way, what Rachel is doing is she's not depending on the Lord to conceive. She is resorting to magic. And in a strange twist, right, in giving up her husband to Leah in exchange for these mandrakes, which would solve the problem, Leah then conceives two more sons with, with Jacob. Again, is Rachel's attitude a righteous attitude? No. And yet, God enfolded it into his plan. And so, Leah's response to this too, the fact that she conceives, she declares, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. Hear the logic there. Leah is saying, I conceived because I gave my husband Zilpah. So I got my wages. Is this God's logic? No. This is Leah's logic. Flawed thinking. And she also bore a daughter. We're told that. Uh, Dinah. So two sons. Uh, first one, um, Issachar, and then Zebulun. And then she bears uh, a daughter. And none of the other daughters of the, of the, of the wives are mentioned except Dinah. She'll be important in uh, chapter 34. So now, Jacob has ten sons. And we've just basically covered the whole thing. All of the conception, ten sons. God sees that Leah is hated. God sees that Leah and Rachel have become rivals. God sees that both Leah and Rachel resort to unrighteous means to produce more offspring for Jacob, Bilhah, and Zilpah. He sees Le uh, Rachel res resort to magic in her own desperation. And for different reasons, both are desperate to bear sons for Jacob. Now, this desire, of course, to bear offspring was not an unrighteous desire. But to this point, God has made Leah fruitful and he prevented Rachel from conceiving. So what do we do with all this? And I, I spent a lot of time just staring at this thing. How do I make any sense of this? And I, and I concluded that, that God sees and acts in ways that may seem contrary, maybe often are contrary to our expectations. Leah was not favored by Jacob, but she was favored by the Lord. Rachel was favored by Jacob, but not by the Lord. And it's, that one maybe makes sense. Oh, Leah was hated. But here's something else. God doesn't change his plans to counter an erroneous human understanding of that plan. If we think wrongly about something that God is doing, it doesn't, God doesn't immediately go, oh, I don't, I don't want to reinforce that, so let me shift things around a little bit. God just carries on with his plan. And, and people sinfully respond to or not what God is doing. God's blessing to Jacob's family is evident, even though this family is highly dysfunctional. It's highly dysfunctional. Now, looking at the story, I, I have just simply have to realize that, that nothing is neatly tied up. Some things make sense, others do not. And isn't that life? Isn't that life? Isn't that how things are? 
well, that made sense. And then something else happens. You know, I don't get it. That is life. But what do we take away from this? God sees. And God will act according to his own purposes. And his purposes are always good. They are. So as a child of God, what, what should you do? S- just simply seek to know the will of God and live by it. Now this is in contrast to, to both Leah and Rachel. Seek to know the will of God and live by it. And we can see all kinds of occasions where they did not. In spite of that, God blessed. That's not, that is not a permission to behave haphazardly or in self-interest or selfishly or to deny God's law. The motivation here is simply seek to live in light of God's will. The psalmist says, and this should be our prayer, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Psalm 143.10. And know this, you cannot thwart God's ultimate plan. He will intervene in one way and not another, but God will always act and do what is good. Now, he may prevent you from doing something unwise in his grace, but God may not prevent you from doing something unwise. And that will be enfolded into his plan. And either way, whether we do what is good and right or not, God always does what is good and right. Second, God remembers. We see that in the text as well. Uh, I simply can't uh, remember all the people that I forgot about. Now, that's a dumb statement, isn't it? I was thinking about that as I wrote it down, thinking that's really dumb. But that's, it's, there's truth to that, right? It's, it's obvious and silly. But I was thinking about living here these, these last 18 years, being, uh, being pastor at this church. I've known so many people that have, that have joined and then left as the military carried them off to some other assignment. And, and Kathy and I will sometimes talk, or some, our, our memories will be jogged. You know, oh, remember, remember, you know, uh, Clark and Christina, Andy and Sabina, David and Pak Young, Kevin, Lilia. Some of you know these names, perhaps. These names come up because of something perhaps on social media or maybe just a comment from someone else who remembers them. But I remember them because for a time I had forgotten, right? They, they were out of my mind. Now, sometimes we remember because we've chosen to remember. We've chosen to stay in touch. We've chosen to keep that fact close at hand. But I have a limited capacity to do that. I I can't remember everything I ought to remember. I have enough trouble keeping up with my younger brother in Wisconsin, my older brother in New Zealand. I just, I I don't. I don't. And people who have left, I, I wish I could keep up. The point is, I've got limited capacity, and I suspect that you do too. Our memories need to be prodded and jogged. And sometimes we just simply can't hold on. But the fact is that God never, never forgets. Now, when verse 22 says, Then God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. When the Bible says God remembers, it's not that something had to, had been out of his mind for a time and that it was somehow reacquainted with the fact. 
That's not true. God does not forget. There is not anything that God cannot know. You have to keep that in mind. God is omniscient, all-knowing. That God remembers in the text is a, an anthropomorphism. You know what that word means? It really is a, using human terms to explain something. And what is being explained here, God remembering, is, is his compassion. It's his understanding of our limited human condition and painful experiences. Now, as we get to the text here, God knew Rachel's anguish about her own barrenness. The Lord had closed her womb for seven years for his own reasons, but it still mattered to him that it was a cause of grief for her. And in spite of the silly, ill-advised, sinful things that she had done, to gain offspring, either through offering up Bilhah, her maidservant, or, or resorting to magic through the mandrakes. The Lord remembered. The Lord had compassion. And he intervened, and he opened her womb. I, I think here's a simple takeaway. God intervenes in the lives of his own because he is compassionate. And listen, if you're a child of God, he has already intervened in your life. Here's what the scripture says. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. It's his compassion. God remembers and whatever situation you're in, God remembers. Whatever anguish you feel, whatever suffering you're experiencing, God remembers, and he has compassion. And what's the proof of that compassion? It's the prophetic word about his son from the prophet Isaiah. About the Christ, it says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Do you believe that Jesus bore your griefs? Do you believe that he has carried your sorrows? Do you believe that the Son of God was crucified for your sin and in your place? Do you believe that he was pierced for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities? Do you believe that he was buried in a tomb? Do you believe that he rose again on the third day so that you could be counted righteous in God's sight, that you could be welcomed in the family of God? Do you believe that? If you do, you know, you know God's compassion. He is proved it to you. And God's compassion does not mean that he will answer every one of your longings. Yes, he opened Rachel's womb and it factored into his grand purposes. But he may not do that for you if you've been longing to conceive and have not been able to, even if you've prayed fervently. And he may not cure your cancer. He may not stop the war in Ukraine. He may not protect your job. He may not prevent the bankruptcy. He may not keep your marriage intact. He may not grant you the husband or wife of your dreams. He may not, but he may. But God 
has compassion. He remembers and he will intervene. And how is it that the Lord intervenes in the midst of not receiving the things that we long for? How is it that the Lord intervenes? I'll remind you, the Apostle Paul was, so much of the New Testament we have at his, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through him. But he had this, what he describes as a thorn in his flesh. A thorn, a, a, some sort of debilitating weakness, some, some thing that was an impediment to his ministry, something that which he pleaded to the Lord, anguished pleading to the Lord three times that it would be taken away. But the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you. It's everything you need. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what he heard from the Lord. And so Paul concludes, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God remembers and he has compassion on your circumstances. And God intervenes with grace. Grace that is everything you need. God remembers that you and I are dust. But his grace is sufficient for you. So we have to trust that truth. We have to learn to be content. Yes, content with weakness, with grief, with loss, insults, hardship, persecution, calamities, content, knowing that because of the grace of God in Christ, that in our human weakness, Christ is strong through you. God remembers and acts to pour out His grace upon you. Uh, lastly, God Listens. God listens. Now, if, uh, um, if I was to kind of boil down what most of the conflict is, now, my wife and I have a good marriage. After 36 or more years, we've kind of figured things out. But there still is, you know, my weaknesses are that I'm not at times a good listener. And that's to my shame. I'm just admitting that publicly. Um, I'll talk over her. She's got some other idea. She says, just stop and listen. <laughs> just hear what I have to say. I have to back up and apologize for that. I'm not a great listener. I mean, if I'm focused and think I should listen, then I can do well. But my default is not to be. But God is a perfectly good listener. Nothing escapes his ear. And in fact, he's ready to hear. We see that both Leah and Rachel had a share in God's promises. And each, in each, of, their, in each of them in their own roles and in God's timing, the Lord would bless them. Jacob had favored Rachel, but to this point, God had not blessed Rachel with any offspring. And verse 17 tells us, again, after the whole mandrake issue, God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob 
a fifth son, and then a sixth. Then, finally, after seven years, Rachel's longing was satisfied. Verse 23, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Now, the point I'm making here is that that God listened to Leah and Rachel implies that they did ask the Lord to conceive. Simple application. If you belong to the Lord, you can be sure that God listens. Don't ever doubt that God listens. The Word of God says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. If you're righteous, God listens to you. Now, I'm not saying if you're perfect, that's not what the scriptures are saying, but if God counts you as righteous, and who is the righteous? According to the covenant that God made with Abraham, those who are trusting in the promise of God, Genesis 15, 6. So if you've trusted, if you've trusted in the promise of God, the promise that if you trust in the vicarious sacrifice of the Son of God for your sin, if you've trusted that, if you believe in your heart that He was raised for your justification, you are among the righteous. And God says, if you're righteous, he hears your prayer. Now, a, a, a hallmark of someone who is righteous in God's sight is, is having a humble and repentant heart. And, and hear me on this. You cannot know God's salvation unless you have a repentant heart for your own sin. Let's be clear on that. Humble and repentant heart before God is the hallmark of being counted righteous in God's sight because we don't have any righteousness of our own. We need an alien righteousness. We need a righteousness that comes to us only by trusting in what God has done for us in His Son. That's how we get righteous. We are counted righteous. We're not behaving righteously. We are counted righteous because we believed. So, if that's you, God hears. And what does God give to the humble? Grace. He gives grace. James 4, 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace from God is every good thing for your eternal good. So think of that. What is God's grace? It is every good thing that will ultimately be for your eternal good. Beginning with Christ crucified in your place, but grace to follow and obey, grace for guidance and wisdom and patience, grace for peace that surpasses all human understanding, grace which brings you into an eternal home where there will be joyful fellowship with Christ forever. Grace. So, while we wait for Jesus to return, God listens to your prayers. And know this, God does not respond to bargaining. We're not going to trade anything for grace. We're not going to trade anything at all, not even our obedience. Hey, God, would you give me grace if I do this thing? No. And God turns a deaf ear to sinful and selfish motives. Know that. James has some very important things to say about prayer. First, hear this rebuke in James 4, 2 and 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask 
and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God will not hear if you're begging him for stuff just to indulge your flesh. God hears the humble and gives grace. But understand this, that God's word says your prayers are powerful. He enfolds them into his purposes. James 5, 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And he says this, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Know that. Who's the righteous person? The one who confesses Jesus is Savior and Lord, humbly repentant, trusting in Christ for salvation. That's the righteous person. And know this, even, even when you don't know how to pray or, or what to pray for, God hears the longings of your heart. He hears those. And what does he do with those longings? He conforms those longings to his own will by the Holy Spirit. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So, so the thing that you know that something is longing and, and you can't even put words to it, the Spirit of God takes that and makes it into something that is a good and righteous request. Hear what Paul says in Romans 8. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So even if you're mumbling out something that doesn't make sense to even you, that's not an excuse for just mumbling anything out. But in those moments of anguish, there's longings that you just don't know. No that God even listens to that. God listens and he will inter intervene in your life according to his own will, but also for your eternal good. So, so let me exhort you, brothers and sisters, pray. Pray, always pray about everything. Ask boldly for his will. Ask for wisdom. Pray for grace and blessing to love him as you ought to love him, to treasure his word. Pray that you would love and serve others in his name. Pray boldly and regularly to hate the sin that still remains in you. Pray for strength to spend yourself in what delights the Lord and to find your ultimate joy. Pray to find your ultimate joy in serving Him and others. God listens and He will intervene in ways that you could not imagine. When God created the world, it didn't wind up like a clock and just walk away. God is not passive. He sees. Nothing escapes his gaze. And whether good or evil, God sees it. He sees it all, and he will act according to his own purposes. And amazingly, he even enfolds everything into his perfect plan. God remembers. He's not distant or uncaring about your suffering. God will relieve that suffering, or he will not but he will always pour out the grace that you need so that you will be reminded that you're only strong in Christ. And God listens. He loves your prayers. He loves your prayers because he loves you. But he did not spare his own son to bring you to himself. Then 
along with that, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He listens. So know this. God has intervened in your life to awaken you to his goodness, and he is intervening in your life moment by moment for your eternal good. So count on it. Count on it and live like it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. <laughs> We're grateful that you see all. We're grateful that you have compassion. You remember that we are but dust. And we're grateful that you hear our prayers and act according to your will. God, this is securing for all of us who belong to you, Father. So I pray, strengthen us. Strengthen us to walk in faith, to trust you, to trust that you see when things don't look like they're going in the world like we want them to go. God, we know you see it and you will act in your own time for your own purposes. So help us to trust. And Father, no, we, we know because your word tells us that you have compassion on us. So thank you that, that Jesus, the man of sorrows, the one who is acquainted with grief, your son, our Savior, went before us into all kinds of suffering. Father, you know that we're dust. Strengthen us to trust you when we feel like dust. And Father, hear us. Pour out blessing and grace upon us that we may love you as we ought, love and serve others as we ought, that we may bring glory to your Son as we wait for his return. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.